0: Well, if you have your Bible this morning, please go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is, is where we're going to be. Um, I, you may have noticed a theme through our service so far has been pointing us to God and what He promises us as our shepherd, as our provider to the rest and the peace that comes from trusting that He knows what's best for us. And That's been a theme in the songs and in the reading and in the prayers. And part of the reason for that is that it's a theme in our text. Now, it's not on the surface of our passage this morning. We're going to have to do some work to get there. But it's what our passage is all about. Where we come this morning in this study of this, of this ancient letter that Paul wrote to some friends of his at a church that he had founded, where we come is to the, the crux of this issue that, they had, that his friends had written a letter to Paul about, wondering what to do, particularly about meat and meals, sacrificed to idols and eaten in temples. Now, that seems very remote from our experience, but to them it would have been a huge deal. because in the ancient world, the closest thing they had to a restaurant was a temple where you would go to, to eat what was sacrificed there. You, you didn't just sacrifice it. people also gave some of it to, to, to keep their, their temple officers alive, and then you would eat others of it, other, other parts of that meat. And it was a place for, for, for socializing, for networking, for climbing the ladder that was so important to people who lived in Corinth at that time. So they really had a vested interest in eating at these temples. They wanted it to be okay. And they had come up with a way of justifying it. And we're kind of piecing this together from what Paul has written to them to, to reply to their to their letter. We don't have their letters. So we you don't know exactly what they had said. But piecing it together, it seems like they were approaching the issue only through what they knew to be true. And what they knew was, there's only one God. He created everything that is. That doesn't leave any room for other gods. So these... These idols can't be real. And if they're not real, then why does it matter if we eat something that was sacrificed to them? It can't have any power, right? If the God itself is not powerful. So we know. We're the enlightened ones. We can just live based on what we know. And Paul's response to them, beginning in chapter 8 and coming through to today, is that, now it's not about what you know. What you know is only part of the problem. Only part of the issue. It's about what you love. Whether or not it's okay for you to eat meat in a temple is not about what you know, it's about what you love. In chapter 8 we saw him say that to them because they weren't thinking about the people who might see them eating in the temple. That if they really loved those who might see them eating in the temple they would think, oh I wonder if someone who doesn't have a good firm sense of what Christianity is might see me eating there, know I'm a Christian and say, Christians worship other gods. Jesus is one among many. The love would say, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm just not going to go there, even if it is okay. That's what he said in chapter 8. In chapter 10, he's coming back to them. And he's saying, actually, even, even if no one saw you eating in that temple. So even if love for your friends isn't the issue. Eating in a temple, meat that's sacrificed to false gods. Even if those gods don't exist, is a problem for you and for your faith. Because something about eating this meal in that place affects what you love. What you want to get out of life. And therefore it's competition for Jesus and his promises to you. What he's going to argue is that you can't have it both ways. You can have Jesus and the supper that rests in his body and his blood. Or you can have these temples and the food that you eat there. You can't have it both ways. What we have this morning, in other words, is a warning passage. It is a severe warning that we're going to try to face head on. Let it sink in. Let it sit or stand over us. Shake us up, even, out of the comfort that some of us might have slipped into. We're going to try to to take it for what it is and understand how we can appreciate and aim our hearts at Jesus more clearly, more powerfully, because of this warning. That's where we're headed what we, want to, what we want to see is that who we are in Christ, or who we are outside of Christ, is not just about what we know, it's about what we love. Now, I'm going to read the passage for us, and then, and then we're going to unpack it together. Like I said, we're going to have to do some work to get there this morning. You're, you're about to see why when we read through it. There is some strange stuff in this chapter. And without any further ado, would you please stand with me as a way of honoring God's Word as we read it together, We're going to read verses 1 to 22 and then unpack them together this morning. This is the word of the Lord. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks be to God. I want to take us through three steps this morning to unpack what's going on here. What you, what hopefully you notice right away is that he starts out not with, with the Corinthians and what they were dealing with, but with Israel. He points them back to something that happened to Israel and he says... This thing that happened to them happened so that you would know what to do in your situation. So we want to unpack Israel's example first. Where Israel went wrong, given all that they had known and experienced, all they'd enjoyed, how did they end up losing pretty much everything before they entered the Promised Land? And then we'll unpack the example of Corinth, because the next move that he makes is to apply what happened to Israel to where they were, to this issue of whether they should eat idol meat or not. And he unpacks it in this this interesting language about fellowshipping with demons or participating with demons versus participating with Christ and how you can't have it both ways. You get one supper or the other, can't have both. And then we're going to drive it into us because there are some serious warnings in this passage. And I think, we're, I think we owe it to ourselves and to the text to take these warnings face on and to let them sink in as a way of trusting in Jesus more fully. That's where we're headed this morning. So let's start with the example of Israel. His his first 12, 13 verses here take us through Israel's history. He's he's just finished saying that he, Paul has just finished saying that he lives his life like a race. Like an athlete who never does anything with his body except what is going to help him to win. So Paul has disciplined himself. Everything in his life, everything in his life aims at one thing. And that is finishing the race that Christ has put him on. And here, in, and here in, in chapter 10, he begins to explain why he lives with this laser focus. The reason is because he knows what happened to Israel. He knows that Israel started their race well, but they didn't finish it. The point of this first section is straightforward. It's, it's given to us by Paul in a straightforward way in verse 6. Their experience, Israel's experience, <clears throat> happened and it was recorded, it was written down to warn us specifically against desiring evil as they did. Now the better word here that I, that, that, that commentators point to it, for, for this phrase is not that they desired it, but that they craved it. It's this intense longing after evil. What happened to Israel happened because they craved the wrong things and in the wrong way. And it's it's... Paul here pushing back against the Corinthians saying don't let your comfort in the fact that you're in the church now keep you from being from being really sensitive to what it is your heart wants because Israel had every blessing that you've had at least in a foreshadowed form they had the blessings that you have and they still fell now let's let's unpack this together so it starts with a list of things that Israel had enjoyed in verse 1 he talks about he talks about the fact that they were under the cloud. Remember the cloud, the story of Israel in the wilderness being led by this cloud closer and closer to the promised land. They didn't know where to go, but God was with them. And he talks about them passing through the sea. So again, a picture of what happened when they were, when they were pushed up against the edge of the water by Pharaoh and his army, and Moses, Moses with his staff parts the waters, and God's power delivers Israel and then sends the waters crashing back down on their enemies once and for all. They had been through, through the waters and under the cloud. And in that sense, they had experienced a kind of baptism, he says. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean the same thing that Christian baptism means. He's not trying to push the word that far. He's, trying to, he's using baptism as kind of a shorthand for a physical, visible deliverance from God. Just as baptism for Christians is a, is a way of picturing what God has done for us to deliver us from sin and death... That's that's what Israel had. They had a clear, vivid picture of God delivering them. Then he continues, they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. It's not that it was magic food or magic drink. It wasn't so much the food that was the point. It's where it came from. It was supernatural food. He's referring back to them getting manna from heaven, this bread that God sent down from them like rain. The birds that God delivered to them, the, the water that came to them from the rock, just from hitting a rock, the point was they depended upon God, and God delivered them. They drank and ate things that clearly came from His hand in no different sense than Christians eat and drink at this memorial meal that we celebrate the the, the bread that represents christ 's body and the juice that represents his blood. those were things that Israel had. It, Not in a full form, but Christ was represented in this rock that gave them their water. And in this bread that came down from heaven, it was spiritual because God gave it to them. And yet still, nevertheless, verse 5 says, with most of them, God wasn't pleased. There's an understatement for you. Two people, two, make it into the promised land from that group. The rest of them were literally, literally the phrase is, strewn about the desert. They were overthrown. They were destroyed. Why? What happened? How could they go from seeing what they saw, from receiving what they received from God, to death? Again, verse 6 is the key. This is the hinge verse for this section. The key to Israel's example and to avoiding it, is seeing it. Their problem was what they craved. Their problem was that they desired evil. Now the examples he gives us help us understand what that means. Examples point us first to the, their idolatry. Verse 7 says, Don't be idolaters, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's a, it's a quote from that story of Israel uh, worshiping that golden calf. You know God has just delivered them. He's just delivered them. But Moses goes up on a mountain to hear from God... And it takes him a long time. And so they start to get worried. Israel's deliverance is now no longer in their control. They're feeling vulnerable. They're, tr- they're struggling to wait for God and his timing through Moses. And so what do they do? They try to harness him. They try to harness God and put him under their control to set him on their terms. So they make this, this calf. Now they still think that this calf represents God. The God who delivered them. They haven't switched gods in their own mind. They think they've just found a way to control the power that had delivered them from Egypt. They're idolaters who sit down to eat and drink and rise up to play. They want control. I think he's chosen this example especially for the Corinthians. He chose that quote because they're talking about eating, right? And they're doing what Israel had done. He's going to get there. They gave themselves over, he says in verse 8, to sexual immorality. 23,000 fell in a single day. It's probably a reference to Numbers chapter 25. That's where there's a story about the sons of Israel sleeping with the daughters of Moab in some sort of elaborate religious ritual that was meant to, to yoke them to Baal. That's what the passage says to this God of those people. They thought, again, they want control. They want power. And they have these desires. They give themselves over to their desires hoping that they can also Gain control over their future. This sort of religious sexuality is different in a way than modern times is. But the impulses that drove them to the daughters of Moab are, are surely the same ones that drive the pornography industry today. These desires haven't gone anywhere. And, now, and, and Israel had used them as a way of trying to gain control over their world. They put the Lord to the test Verse 9 says, and they grumbled, verse 10 says. We've got plenty of examples to pull from, from Israel's wilderness wandering. If If you just read the stories about Israel in the wilderness, it's full of Israel not thinking they're getting enough from God. I mean, think about this. They'd been fed in the middle of a desert where there was nothing to eat, directly from heaven, bread. And the way they responded to that was to complain that they wanted more meat. Think about how often the children of Israel say we had it better off in Egypt. You know, sure we were in slavery, but at least we had full bellies, right? Take us back there. It wasn't that their needs weren't met. It's that their needs were not met in the way they wanted. It's that they had a vision for their life that God was not delivering. They wanted more. And that's what Paul means when he says they desire evil. It's not that... Meat or sexuality are bad things. It's that they desired them in an evil way. They desired them on their terms. They desired more than what God had decided to give them. Now here's the payoff. Here's the point. Israel enjoyed the incredible blessing, an incredible amount of blessing from God's hand. It was obvious that God had given them the things that they enjoyed. And it wasn't unlike what the Corinthians had. He's kind of tailored this picture to fit what they're saying about themselves. We've had baptism, we've had the Lord's Supper, and now we just want to go eat at the temple, right, of this false god. Surely we're protected from whatever power there might be there by what we've enjoyed, by what Jesus has given us. But he's pointing pointing out that Israel enjoyed every blessing they did, but they took it for granted. They craved something more. And they were destroyed by the just punishment of God. So, verse 12 says, Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. That's a word for us too. That's a word for each of you. Do you think that you stand? If you do, If you're comfortable there, take heed, lest you fall. Now, we're going to qualify that in a minute. We're going to say a lot more about this a little later. But for now, let it sink in. Sit with this. This is God's word to you. Now, Paul drives home this example in verses 14 to 22. That's where he applies it to Corinth. Corinth. And his main concern is still whether or not it's okay for the Corinthians to go to these temples in their city and eat food that had been sacrificed to an idol. And the gist of Israel's example for their situation is that they're asking the wrong questions. Now, Again, we don't have their letter, we don't know exactly what they asked him, but we can piece it together pretty well from what Paul has said. They're asking the wrong questions. What they're asking is, how far can I go towards idolatry and not get bitten? Right? How close can I get? sounds like Israel putting God to the test. How far will he let me go towards these other gods? He tells them though, Paul tells them that since they have no reason to believe they're any safer than Israel and since Israel fell despite all the blessings they had enjoyed then you should be running hard in the other direction. That's why he starts in verse 14 with flee. Don't see how far you can get, how close you can get to it. Don't inch your way towards these things that you want that God has not given you. But flee from idols. Theirs is a false security. What, their security is based, again, in what they know. What they know, what, what, what many of us would claim to know, is that Jesus alone is God. And what they believe is that through baptism and through eating the Lord's Supper, they've sort of checked Jesus off their list. This is how we get a stake in him. We've done these things. Now we're good. Now we can move on to living the life we want to live. He's sort of in their past at this point. Why not eat at temples? Paul's argument to them. It's mysterious. I think the gist of it that we want to unpack is that it isn't enough to know what's true. Because worship of the true God, or of any other false God, is ultimately not just a matter of what you know. It's a matter of the heart and what it loves, what it wants, what it identifies with. It's a matter of the heart and its allegiance. That's where he goes. Now, the way he gets there is pretty pretty strange, right? At least for us who don't think a lot about demons. The way he gets there... It, it, takes us through this comparison between the Lord's Supper, that Christians practice regularly at the heart of their worship, and eating what he says is a a dinner that would attach you to or be a participation with demonic powers, spiritual forces of evil. Now, the main point is clear enough. The main point is you can't have both, right? You can have the Supper of Christ or you can have Table fellowship, if you will, with demons. You, you can't have both. But the real question that, 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 that's been bugging me this week as I've been trying to unpack this, and maybe you're thinking about is, is what's the stuff about demons, and why is eating, why is specifically eating a meal like this one so powerful and so dangerous? What is it about this act that makes it tied up with allegiance? The issue is clearly allegiance. you you got, you got Jesus or you got somebody else. You can't have both. But somehow eating food is tied up with this question of allegiance. And we want to understand why that is. Because without understanding why it is, this passage is just going to remain bizarre and and disconnected from us. And what we want is to be able to see its power for us this morning. So I want to unpack these questions. I want to start with the supper. Start with with the Lord's Supper. That's where Paul starts. Unpack what it is he says about the Lord's Supper and why it matters. And then I think it will help us to see what's so dangerous about eating food that's sacrificed to an idol in an idol temple. The Lord's Supper, his, his description of it here, is, is one that, that pretty much everybody is tempted to go to, to try to figure out what Paul thought actually goes on when Christians gather to eat this Lord's Supper. So it gets mined in all these details for, for sort of weapons, bullets to use in the battle between Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox uh, believers who... Who see something almost supernatural or magical happening through these elements and that transforms the person who takes them on, versus Protestants who who think that it's more of a representation, not really actually any sort of spiritual power in the in, in the element, in the bread, in the wine itself. But I think to, to try to go to this passage to answer those questions is to push it too far. Because really, really Paul is just trying to make a pretty narrow point. He's making a very specific observation about what he wants them to see, about temple meals. And what he focuses on here in these verses, what he focuses on is not the quality of the bread or the quality of the wine. The wine and the bread aren't the point. What he focuses on here is fellowship. This word he keeps using, participation, it's the same word for fellowship, for sharing in, for bonding around. What he's interested in is not the quality of the food, but the fellowship that happens around this meal. And it comes through in the way, that he, the way that he describes the supper. Verse 16, it's the cup of blessing that we bless. The emphasis is on the we. It's the bread that we break. Verse 17 makes, it, makes the point the clear, most clear. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. The point is that by sharing this bread together, it forms us into a whole. It brings us together into a community. It puts it in the meal around these... Around these foods and drinks, we are made one. It's about identity. It's an act of solidarity or allegiance. It isn't about the magical properties of the food. In fact, I think that's what Paul is specifically trying to say in verse 19. He's like, what, am I implying that the food is anything? No. The food isn't the point. The the point is not whether, whether this idol actually exists or whether this food is actually somehow spiritually tainted by that idol. The point is solidarity. It's allegiance. Here's the way uh, one New Testament writer put it. I I found this very helpful. He said, uh, not not a writer of the New Testament, by the way, a writer about the New Testament, what we call a commentator. Here's what he says. In the ancient world, people understood that meals incurred obligations. Meals meant more to them than they do to us. Meals incurred obligations. They put you on the hook. Given the patronage system, he says, that's the system where You know, especially in the ancient world, you had some really powerful people and then you had a bunch of other people who tried to get power by attaching themselves to the really powerful people. And so you would sort of work for them, be their minion, if you will. So in that system, in that patronage system, they understood that one could not accept an invitation to eat with one's patron and also accept an invitation from one of the patron's bitter rivals without basically switching patrons. He continues... Participating in a patron's meal displays one's solidarity with that patron. The unity with Christ and with one another in the meal has consequences for participation in any other meals that create bonds and signal alliances. And here's his here's summary. If meals embody the community, if the meal itself is where the community takes on its flesh, then one cannot embody community with Christ and With demons, I hope this is starting to come clear. There's something uniquely significant about eating together, and it isn't the food. It's about what sharing that food does, what it aims at, how it affects the heart. I think, I mean, our 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 commentator here is talking to us about the ancient world, and yeah, they thought about food a little differently than we do. But but there is some parallel even in our own world about where where meals are more than just meals. Think about Thanksgiving dinner. Think about what Thanksgiving dinner is as a time for bonding, as a bonding agent. Think about the nostalgia that's attached to it, about the connection to friends or family that you have around that meal. It's, it's more than just a food, right? It, in a way, that's even tough to put into words. It, it accomplishes something. It, it's a bonding agent. It raises the event itself to a new place. And ultimately, I think what we would say is that it shapes the heart. It aims the heart and what it loves, comes really, really close to an act of worship. You say the same thing about tailgating, right? <laughs> tailgating meals have a significance that's far greater than the food itself because often the food isn't very good, right? And the environment, because often the environment is intensely uncomfortable. If you tailgate in the South, like I grew up doing, it isn't about the food or about the setting as much as it's tied to family and friends and memories and entertainment. It's an act of worship that aims the heart. So Paul's, Paul's, uh, Paul's argument to his friends in Corinth is that, yeah, you might be right that the food isn't magical and that it can't harm you because these gods, these gods aren't real. That might be true. What you know might be correct. But you are wrong to believe that eating this food is not dangerous because meals shared with these people In this place, aim at something which is very real. These meals are built specifically to bond you together with others who want what you want and who seek it from this common source. Among Christianity, that means coming together around this meal that represents everything that Jesus offers us. We are bonded together by this physical act that reminds us of who we are in Christ. It's an act of allegiance and solidarity. And if you eat these meals at a temple devoted to a God that represents something you want from your life, that's what the ancient gods represented. They represented fertility or or good crops or rain or power in war or whatever. If you eat with these people in that place representing that desire, that craving then the eating itself fashions your heart to aim at something other than what Christ has come to give you. And in that act, you are placing yourself dangerously close to where Israel was in the wilderness. Yet we see what God has given us. It's not enough. They craved evil and they were destroyed for it. That's his warning to them. That's where the demons come in. The demons throughout Scripture are much less sort of goblins that hide in the dark places to jump out and get you. The demons are spiritual forces you can't often identify, but that are always at work shaping your heart to trust something other than God, to want something other than what He's promised you. Think about the encounter, the famous stories in the Bible where, where the spiritual forces of evil show up. Think about the very first story where Satan, the, the, the evil personified in the snake... How does the snake appeal to to Eve? It's not to scare Eve. It's not to threaten to bite Eve. It's to work on Eve's heart, on what she wants, on what she trusts. It's to tell her that what God is offering you here is not nearly what you could get if you go out on your own. Think about the story of Job, where, where the power of evil comes to God and says, Yeah, Job trusts you now, but look at all he's got. He's got everything going for him. He's got this great house with all these wonderful kids and he's so wealthy and he's basically had everything fed to him on a silver spoon. Start taking away the things that he loves and see if he still loves you. Well, He's working on Job's heart. That's what Satan does. He takes away what Job really loves to see if he loves God underneath. Think about the encounter of Jesus in the, in the wilderness with, with Satan. He comes to Christ. And what does he offer him? He doesn't try to beat him up, right? He's not trying to get him. He's working on his heart. He knows he craves food. He offers him bread. He knows he's come to set up a kingdom. He offers it to him right now. You can have the world if you worship me. Christ resisted. Christ resisted where no one else has and Christ came calling his followers to put their hearts where neither moth nor rust can destroy where no thieves break in and steal to put their hearts, to put their treasure on the things that he has promised them in a world that will not fade away. Demons do battle with God over the hearts of those whom God has made in his image. That means you. So you want to know what it is to share or fellowship with or participate in demons? It is to give yourself over to a craving for something other than what God has given you, other than what he has promised you, other than what he provides as your shepherd. That's what it is. Now, now looking for, for close, tight parallels between what we experience and what they were, what they were doing in these ancient temples, I, I racked my brain all week, and I, I'm just going to be honest, I couldn't come up with anything. <laughs> Nothing that wouldn't cheapen the reality of what they were dealing with. So I don't want to try to tell you, okay, here is exactly what it would look like for you to fellowship with a demon. I think that would be a disservice to you. What I do want to do, though, is is talk about some clear warnings we can take from this passage. Now now that we've got an understanding of it, I want us to leave with, to sort of of go out thinking, praying through warnings that that are sort of on the surface of what Paul says to the people in Corinth. And Here's the first one. Here's the first takeaway. Don't get too comfortable. Don't get too comfortable. This is the takeaway from Israel's experience. Do not, friends, please hear me. Do not confuse comfort in your Christian trappings for true faith in Christ or reliance on what God promised you. It may be that you can no sooner think of yourself as not being Christian than as not being American. That it's just this identity that you were born into, that you've always had, that you've never really thought about whether your commitment to Christ is true and genuine. Oh, friends, if, that, if you're content to stay there, you are, you are walking a very dangerous line. It is true that there is rest to be had, security and assurance in the promises of God. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But it is also true that over and over again throughout the New Testament, we are warned to not let our comfort keep us from seeing our true condition, to fight against the apathy that takes God's promises for granted. I think we in this city, in this particular time, are as susceptible to that danger as anybody has ever been. we have it made compared to what most people through most of human history have experienced. And that makes it easy makes it easy, ironically, to assume a connection to Jesus without ever having to test it and to get really discontent with what we have. The point here is that we can't afford to, to just sort of marvel at Israel's unbelief. I think that's, that's where a lot of us go. We read those stories and we think, hey, you guys just walked through the Red Sea on dry land and you're already complaining. I can never do that. But aren't we saying, if if we go there, aren't we revealing about ourselves that maybe we really don't believe the promises of the gospel? Because ultimately what we claim to believe is that the God who made us, the God who made us and everything in this world, and who actually sits right now governing it all in power, that this same God became like us that he actually took on a human body and if he was alive in a human flesh on this earth now like he was then he could be sitting in a chair in this room and you could see him that's what we believe and that this same god made like us lived a perfect life that he could then sacrifice on our behalf to stand in our place that he took on the sin that was ours as if it was as if it was his as if he had done these things That he stood between us and the the judgment that we deserve for being other than what we were made to be. That this same God was truly dead on our behalf, but now is really, really and truly alive. This moment, he's alive. And he's promised that if we just trust in him, that's all it takes. Not Not if we perform to a certain standard, but if we will trust that he can make us alive too, that he will do it. Now that's what we claim to believe. Can you imagine do we really believe that if we can go out of here this morning and grumble as Israel grumbled because we're more focused on what we don't have on what we crave than on what we have if we really believe what we say we believe would we be so committed to our own personal sense of what's best for our lives so committed that we're angry when our ideas don't come to reality when we compare ourselves to Israel and say we could never be guilty of what they're guilty of, what we're really saying is that we don't believe that God has given us what the New Testament tells us that He has. Because if we believed it, we've experienced more than Israel. We have seen more of His grace than they knew. What we give when we grumble about what we don't have is a sign that something else besides god and his promises is ruling our hearts and what this passage tells us what this passage says to you is that if you think you stand take heed lest you fall don't get comfortable comfort and apathy are the enemy of faith and assurance. They are not the same thing. Here's takeaway number two. Don't be naive. Don't be naive. What I mean is, I think we actually tend to, tend to have the mindset that the Corinthians had about potential gods in our lives that compete with Jesus. Jesus. And what the Corinthians thought is that these idols at these temples were no threat because they were not real. They're just made by human hands. And that's true. And I think we tend to think that we don't believe in a sort of an enchanted universe where there's a God behind every tree. In this day and age, it's hard enough to believe in, in one God who created all things. This is Our biggest enemy seems like the secular world that doesn't believe there's any supernatural influence. Not that there's gods everywhere. So we're kind of like the Corinthians in that sense. We, we operate based on what we know is true, that there aren't gods everywhere. But Paul's argument to them extends straight to us. The problem is not whether or not these things really exist. The problem is what you love. It's what you want. It's what you crave. The problem is in our heart's affection. Not whether or not that job you have in mind that you're aiming your whole life towards getting, is a God with power. Not whether or not the thing you bought over the weekend at the mall is a real God. Not whether or not that spouse you daydream about, that you imagine and want for yourself, is a real God. Now our knowledge tells us these sorts of things, they're not gods. We wouldn't even call them that. But gods show up, not in knowledge, but in love and affection. These are gods because they sit on the throne of our hearts. And the things we do, the practices we do to yield to these cravings for things God has not chosen to give us, to whatever extent we yield to them as the Corinthians would have done by sitting down and eating at an idol's temple, we are fellowshipping with something that is not God, that is not His promises. And what the Bible tells us is that behind these unmet cravings, Are spiritual forces that are aiming to destroy us. So the key is to look to what you crave. The key to fighting comfort that just assumes you're good with Jesus so I can move on to what I really want out of my life is, is, is to constantly and relentlessly examine what it is you crave and to bring your friends in on the process. Ask them to look at you and to speak into what it is you're aiming your life for. Because in your cravings, you reveal your God. And in your cravings, to whatever extent you give yourself to them, to whatever extent they are not rooted on God and what He offers you, you are fellowshipping with spiritual forces that want to destroy you. Look to what you crave. What do you imagine and daydream about when you're alone? What are, what, where do you find yourself spending your money? What do you find that gives you joy or causes you anger? There you will find your gods. There you will find competition for Jesus. And you can't share the meal spread for you by Christ and the meal that's promised to you by the things of this world. It's either or, friends. Now, here's the last thing I'll say I'll close with this. Last takeaway do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Gospel-centered warnings always have to end with this promise. That Jesus is for you if you will latch hold to him in faith. Look at in in the middle of Paul's sharp warning to them. In the very center of it, verse 13. He assures them, No temptation has overcome you except what's common. God is faithful in the middle of his warning to them. In the middle of his attempt to shake them up so that they don't just go drifting, sleeping in a daze into their own destruction. In the middle of his attempt to shake them up, he points them to the faithfulness of God, the God who came to them in Christ, who gave himself up for them on the cross, who has risen to new life for them if they will trust in him. That's where he points them. So friends, this, is not, this warning is not for you if you're afraid. If you're afraid, read Romans 8 and trust in the God whose love will never be separated from you. Look to Jesus, to what God promises you, to what Michael Horton has said, to to what we hear more than what you see. Stop looking at your life if it's driving you to fear. Let it drive you to God and His promises to you. Let it drive you to a faith that is not complacent or apathetic, that knows we live in a world at war but that attached to him who rules all, we will win. Father, your promises are rich and true and free and we want to believe them. Forgive us, Father, for our fickle hearts that want so much other than what you've provided. Protect us, Father, from going the way of Israel, from desiring... From craving what is evil. What competes for our hearts with you and your promises. Father, we are at fault for what we crave. We know that. It would be foolish of us to blame something other than ourselves. And we know that we can't fight a victorious battle against the idols in our hearts unless you fight with us. So even though it's our fault, our prayer to you, our audacious, bold, but confident prayer to you through Jesus is that your grace would give us the victory. For Christ's sake, amen.
1: was lost in darkest night.
0: Yet thought I knew
1: the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope. Seven. i the This morning. We're going to take up an offering. Parents, I invite you to go and get your children and then come back and join us for the uh, benediction and for the last song together.
0: congregation, will you please stand with me now as we receive this benediction? Ours is a world at war. Do not be deceived. But beneath the smile of Jesus, the darkest of earth's shadows flee. So go out now together, bonding over the promises of God to you in Christ. They are true. Believe it. Go in His peace. Amen. Amen.
1: Let's join together on the last verse of All I Have is Christ. What a great prayer for us as we head out. Now, Lord, I would be Yours alone, And this, so long I see The strength to follow your commands Could never come from me Oh, Father, use my ransom is my life, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, hallelujah, Jesus is my life. And when you're dismissed, please help us by grabbing a chair and taking it in the back,